This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome back to The Wigs, I'm Jim Minns. Once again, we are continuing our one-on-one mini-series about the Wigs themselves, who they are, what drives them and their advocacy, and more importantly, what led them to live a life dedicated to the pursuit of justice. And this week, it's Felicity Graham. I wanted to start off at the very beginning. Why are you a solicitor? A barrister? Sorry, a barrister. <laughs> Start that up straight away. Because <laughs> I wanted to ask, why did you get into law? That's probably a better question. Why? I think that answer, well, that question has a few different answers. Like, it's not, there's not sort of one explanation or there's not some kind of linear pathway to that result. But probably the starting point would be my family and the upbringing that I had with my four sisters and my parents. My parents were... Is it just the four girls? So five of us in total. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I have four sisters. Wow. Um, I'm right in the middle. Wow. And... Yeah, so I think my parents and my grandparents kind of really imparted to me this sense of doing things for other people and kind of using your skills and using your privilege for the benefit of others. Service. Service. Absolutely a value of service in Mm. our family. Mm. And how did they do that? My mum has really modelled that uh, in her own life and ways, really getting involved in a lot of community events, really being focused on kind of community building, always welcoming people into our home to kind of um, nurture those social relationships. They both went to church, um, very committed to their church community. So I think there were some values that came through that, Mm. um, the Uniting Church, Mm. and um, it's quite progressive approach to kind of human dignity and and service to people. What do your sisters do? Uh, My sister, Michelle, she's a public servant. She works in the federal government Mm. down in Canberra. So another service again? Yeah. So she's an engineer, but she's a, um, yeah, really given herself to, I guess, trying to improve our society through service in, in government. Yeah. My sister Penny is an artist and an art teacher. Again. Giving back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the work she does, Helping children to be creative yeah. is just phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, my two little sisters, they're twins. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was quite a cool aspect of the structure of our family. Like mm. Five girls is quite a... Yeah. Um, you don't hear often of a family of, of five girls. Yeah, five girls, that's kind of already... Out there, it must be so um, interesting and unique. Like, was there a lot? I mean, obviously, a lot of you guys have adopted, as you say, the lessons sort of passed down from the from your parents. But um, at when you were sort of, you know, my kids' age, was there a lot of rivalries, or did you guys get along well? Or? So there was a, quite a lot of rivalry between me and my sister Penny, who's five years older than me, okay. during her sort of teenage years. Yep. 
So she's like 15 and that was or quite 10. a sort of tense period. Oh, really? <laughs> you remember this? <laughs> You're 10 years old? Um, and, yeah, but we all sort of rode through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, oh, my sisters are kind of a massive source of strength and... So you've grown through that? Like, you, like you're still, oh, still close family, everyone's together still? Really close, mm. yeah. So my two younger sisters... Um, Ali, she's a physics teacher in Cambridge in wow. the UK. Yeah. And Susie is CEO of this company, Dendra Systems, that uses drones to map environments and then reforest areas. So all the girls have really had a calling to give back. Totally. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and I think it's really... I think it's come from my parents. I think it's come from my grandparents. I think it's come from also being you know, through the privilege of our upbringing, having these really amazing educational opportunities, Mm -hmm. you know, going to school, going to university, the number of degrees in our families. Yeah, yeah, quite up there. But you Um, guys were quite um, academically savvy, though. I've been led to believe by Mr. Stephen Lawrence. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you want to elaborate on that, but... Oh, I mean... Like, was school hard for you? No. Right. Um, I, I love school you love and I did heaps at, of different stuff at, at a school, social like, level and at an academic level yeah I played heaps of sport I did lots of music I played the French horn in orchestras yeah, and bands yeah, and I yeah, sang yeah. in the choir wow. yeah. so so school wasn't a challenge it was something that you took to quite yeah I mean I did lots of fun stuff or things that I found fun yeah. anyway like I did debating I had all these cool opportunities to do things with other people, you know, learn from other... You still got friends from that period? Yeah, I do. Mm. And I think music was a big big part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I was 15 or 16, I travelled overseas with an orchestra that I played in. Wow. And I made some really close friends during that time. Mm. Um, And... Do you ever think of going that was going to be... I don't think so. I, I've always loved music and I've actually recently taken up playing, playing French, again. French horn again. Mm, yeah, in mm. a totally different context when I was living up in the Northern Rivers and some mates had a band that yep. used to get together just at parties and playing sort of more funk and soul kind of stuff. And, so and you can insert the French horn into that? Improvising. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a completely different mode of playing yeah. for me, which I found really exciting, but also really challenging. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because I'm used to, like, I've got the score, I learn the of notes, course. I follow the music, I look at the conductor. Yeah, and you insert yourself in where you need to be fitted into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. whereas this kind of free-for-all and then sort of, okay, learn, I love that learn the blues scale and I then off you stuff. go, just yeah. pick some notes and play what are Whatever rhythm you want, yeah. whatever yeah. notes. And, and, and you're the lead now, we'll follow you, you know. Yeah, yeah or just, okay, the singer's kind of finished a verse and then we're just going to break out into some mm. kind of solo section yeah. where the horn and the piano are just going to riff off each other for and a while. And you've never done that before? No. Yeah, so it's awesome. It's been really cool. Yeah. Something I want to keep progressing, I yeah. think, because yeah. it's a different way of interacting with the instrument. Hundred percent, hundred. Like, I can. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Terrifying and fun. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Especially, yeah, especially when you're first starting out, and then it's sort of you like you live for those sort of spontaneous moments. Um, this is probably jumping ahead. This actually is jumping ahead. But in your, uh, just curious to go down that road. In your sort of this free jazz style, where you get to sort of you know give give, give a, a bit of sort of um, creative input into like a, a, a jam, do you reckon there's any parallels there in um, your professional work? Mm. I think I love professionally working in a team. Uh huh. I love the way that a legal argument can be really turbocharged and kind of finessed through the input of multiple brains. Yeah, right. Yeah. And the strategy and the the thinking that goes into what ultimately happens in court mm. where I'm standing up on my feet and I'm... Because I, I imagine it's just you, but it's not. In no. my head, it's just you going, I know this. 
And here it is. No, I think my best work is the product of collaborative processes. Okay. Okay, yeah. Which might involve people who aren't actually even briefed in the case. You know, like talking with other colleagues or other people. Yep. And trying to tease out these issues, tease out these ideas or ways of framing them or ways of being persuasive about a particular thing that you're trying to advocate for. Yeah. Yeah. I think being at the bar, one of the challenges is that it can be professionally isolating in the sense that there is this view that kind of you're the one that... That's what I was... Delivered. That's what I always imagined it as. Even now, not having known you, Emmanuel and Stephen, I still think of it as this sort of solace, mm. lonely, oh, we won't disturb the barrister until we're ready to kind mm. of thing. I don't know if that's... Yeah, pre- that's not the way I like to work. Yeah, cool. Um, I mean, sometimes you end up in a situation where kind of the process or the circumstances mean that you are... It is a more solitary endeavour. Yep. But I prefer where I can to have a team, have some collaboration, have this sort of meshing of ideas and yeah. minds that then contributes to... Well, that's, that's a good parallel. Which I think is, is a parallel to music. Yeah. Because you're sort of listening to other people, you're building on something else that they make like they start a riff and then you build on it completely um you know they start a melody you do something behind the scenes to kind of prop that melody up Mm. all those types of things yeah i think there is a parallel so let's go to your period where you finished school Mm. okay and there's decisions about where Mm. to go is it is it there that you make the choice to take uh, the law as a as a path, or did you go in other directions first, and then found yourself ending up in that direction? Mm, I I don't know when it happened, but it was definitely before the end of high school. Is that, that right? I decided that I wanted to do law. Oh wow! Because I just remember the day that the marks came out, and I really had my heart set on it. And that was a, and, law was a particular mark, isn't it? Yeah, particular mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. I didn't get the mark oh, wow. that I needed. Bummer. So I was... Were you devastated? I was completely oh, devastated. No. Oh, gosh. It, yeah, it's silly looking back on it now. No, completely I get it. Completely yeah. ridiculous. Mm. But I, that's how I felt. Of course. When you're um, 18. I mean, you don't know any better. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you don't really know when you're younger, even through your early career is just how many different pathways and how many different options there are out there yes yes definitely yeah and so what was the what was anyway i ended up doing an arts degree to start with and then i just took this approach that once i was in the university system begrudgingly no i wanted to do arts law Mm -hmm. so i wanted to do like italian and history Mm -hmm. and do these philosophy and other subjects that i wanted to do as part of an arts degree Mm -hmm. uh so i did that and then i there was this sort of pathway that if you worked hard, got good marks within the university system, that could sort of wipe away the fact that you hadn't uh-huh. got the mark to enter law in high school cool. and you could transfer within. So in second year, I then did a transfer into arts law. Oh, that's kind of great. caught up on law subjects, doubled up my load on that stuff to then ultimately finish kind of at the end of five years oh great with, with the cohort that i would have started with oh that's great yeah was that challenge i don't know if you, if you can remember that what, did you find you know being out of high school did you already have a good work routine in high school or did you find that challenging to be that young and that have that much freedom and then still get smashed with a workload that meant that you couldn't you know cash in on that freedom <laughs> <laughs> i was quite a last minute student Okay. I sort of liked the pressure of deadlines. Okay. <laughs> okay. I or, cannot Or performed relate. to the pressure of deadlines. Okay, sure. Like cool. I would do all-nighters and things when assignments were due and things. So Even though push I, them I, off. Do, I do some work yeah, yeah, before, yeah. Mm. but the final kind of writing stage, the final product stage, I, I think I just remember often being in the library like through the night. Yeah, 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 yeah. I cannot relate. But I get that, I get what you're saying. 
<laughs> you yeah. like to have I have, everything I, organized I need, I need well a month. in advance. I need a month. But like, when do you finish it compared to the deadline? Uh, well before. Yeah, I need as much time as possible and I need to do it every day. <laughs> otherwise, I'm, like, there's no... Otherwise, it doesn't stay in. Right. Okay. My brain is so... I think there's only half a brain in there. And that's so we need, like, double, we need to double the packet true. in. <laughs> um, now, that's really interesting. So you've caught up with the original cohort. You're now exactly the same place you're, you're in the exact the place that you wanted to be when you finished high school hmm. so that's really cool you've, yeah. you've, you've you know overcome whatever uh, obstacle there do you get admitted straight away or what do you do yeah so period? my the last semester I did at university I did overseas in the Netherlands oh cool which was an I awesome way to finish my degree I made a lot of really cool friends mm. over there international friends and also Australian friends awesome um yeah, a really... Any international criminal court stuff as a result? or I did a bit of that in the study. Mm-hmm. I haven't worked in that field mm-hmm. professionally, although I might yeah. down the track. Cool. <clears throat> I made a really good friend, Agata Vyshbosky. She's a lawyer in Victoria mm-hmm. who has been pretty influential on me in terms of strategic lawyering. Mm. So that was that's been a kind of really great friendship and um, person to have kind of traveling along my journey as a lawyer as well. Mm. She's done quite different things to me, more focused on civil law, like tenancy and consumer law rights and things like that. Yeah, Um, right. And so she's with you in this sort of period of your life? Yeah. So we met um, in Leiden, kind of the first first day I think that I was there mm. in this little town this university town in Netherlands nice. so that was kind of then I guess a bit of a time a, quite a formative time of relationship um, building also in my sort of first job after leaving university which was as tip staff to a Supreme Court judge Justice Graham Barr I remember this yes yes and so I made a lot of really good friends there as well mm. who and there were, there were quite a small... There was a small crew of us who really were interested in criminal law. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why, why were you interested in that? Fundamentally, it's about human rights. Mm-hmm. You know, like rights of the accused to fairness. Victims' rights. Um, it's uh, an area of law where there's a lot of advocacy to be done, you know, courtroom advocacy to Mm -hmm, be done. mm -hmm. Uh, The individual that's charged is thrust into a situation where they are going to be in court. And so they're going to need a lawyer. And so that was attractive to me, I guess, as an area where I could do advocacy, which was something that I really wanted to do. You really wanted to do. Yep. And you 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 said you were debating in high school. Yeah. And I was taught criminal law at, Sydney Uni by Peggy Dwyer. She's a barrister Mm -hmm. in New South Wales. But at that time, she was a solicitor at the Redfern Aboriginal Legal Service. Mm -hmm. She used to go to court during the day and then come to uni and teach us in the evening class. And That was quite influential. It was really influential because it kind of... She could insert her day-to-day experience and the practical uh, expertise that she had yeah. into then the theoretical things that we were learning about. And did you like, and, and you found that like, like her energy exciting or you were like, totally. Yeah, like, yeah, okay. totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think most people did, even if they didn't have an interest in right, right, She's right, a very right. good teacher. Yeah. 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 Um, it's a great subject too. Yeah. I mean, I got a really bad mark in criminal law. Stephen said the same thing. I think it was probably my worst subject of what? my law degree. Yeah. How funny. Um, yeah. I don't know. Which obviously didn't reflect my interest in it. Of course. Or mm. anything like that. But well, I think it was just. I think you made up for his hands. <laughs> <laughs> When I did criminal, we did it quite early. Mm. Did you do it quite early? Early, because yeah. it was it was and one of my first subjects. I 
think we, I might have even done it in my first year of doing law, so in second year, yeah, uni, yeah. something like that. But it, 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 kept, it kept a hold of you. Absolutely. Okay. And I sort of sought out other subjects that I could do during university that allowed me to explore those ideas more. So I did criminology as an elective, oh, and I no. did an elective where I um, was paired up with a public defender and mm. did a practical unit with them where I basically followed them around to court. And That's awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. It was, it was a really great subject. Uh, and probably one of the, the first sort of markers in opening up this idea of moving out to the western part of New South Wales to do work. So it's tell the, us about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I did that semester with Angus Webb, who was a public defender, uh-huh. and he had been a lawyer out in Broken Hill okay. uh, back in the day. Mm-hmm. And so that was probably something that kind of twigged that idea. Obviously, Peggy had worked at the ALS in Redfern. Yeah. It just struck me as a an opportunity and a challenge and a place where a lot of really amazing work had been done. Okay. The ALS was first set up in the nine, in 1970. Yeah, okay. And it was this really and it was the first ALS in the country in New South Wales. The one in Broken Hill. Not well, initially there was um six services across the state Mm -hmm. that were set up. And then in 2006, they were amalgamated across New South Wales and ACT to be one service. Mm -hmm. But the ALS started really in Redfern Mm -hmm. um, with a team of kind of young lawyers and Aboriginal activists and a real kind of communal, a collective approach to trying to bring about some justice to what was going on, particularly with the police conduct at that time. And so you finish up your tenure as a tipster and then, I guess, seek it out? You're admitted at this stage? And you yeah, so I spent the time working for the judge doing the practical legal uh-huh. training that I had to do to become admitted. Yes. And then okay. by the end of the year, I got admitted yep. as a solicitor. And that was quite cool because the judge was sitting up on the bench oh, whilst wow. I was being That's so cool. admitted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who moved um, your admission? Peggy Dwyer. Oh, cool. Yeah, you told yeah. us that on the weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. Peggy Dwyer That's moved nice. my admission, which was really... You got a good relationship with her. Yeah. yeah. We did some work uh, at, when I was at the bar up in the Northern Territory on the Royal Commission into Kids in Detention and oh, wow. the Child Protection System. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she acted for NAJA, which is the... The North, Northern Territory, Northern part, mm-hmm. ALS, and I acted for the Central Australian ALS. Mm. So that was that was really interesting work that we did together. Yeah, but yeah, we've sort of known each other over. That's nice over the years, which is cool. Yeah. So then I got admitted. I the judge was approaching the age of retirement. Forced retirement. Forced yeah, retirement. Yeah, yeah. Um, his birthdays. February or March. I should yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I, think it, I think it's early March. And so he asked, would I stay on for the last few months just until he oh, cool. finished? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. kind of finished up with him and then about a week later drove out to Dubbo. You did, so what, what, so what so I'd you been mean? applying for jobs. And, the, and then and I, Dubbo ALS. And I got ALS. a job at the at Dubbo ALS. And so you're on your way. And then I was on my way. And, and so how long, I mean, this is pretty much the start of my known history of you. Mm. How long were you out there for from the beginning? So I moved out there on, I can't remember the exact date, but sure. end of March 2009. Mm-hmm. And then I came back to Sydney, March, April, two thousand and fifteen. When I came wow. to the bar, it's a good tenure, six years. Yeah. So, is this where you meet our mutual friend Stephen Lawrence? It is. Okay, tell us about that. Okay, so the Double ALS office, sort of this kind of rabbit warren with little offices off the corridor. Mm-hmm. And I was in one of the offices down the very end of the corridor and there was one spare across from me that the trial advocate position used. Mm -hmm. And Stephen Lawrence became the trial advocate for the Western region. Mm -hmm. 
And he sort of turned up from... Were you there first? I was there first. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah I was there... So I started March. I think he started around... I don't know, November that year or something? Mm. Bit, bit later okay. in the year. And he then got put in the office, the office opposite me. And so we kind of both sit at the end of this corridor with our doors open and just be able to sit at our desks and chat across the corridor yeah, with each yeah, other. Yeah, cool, yeah. And we, yeah, we just kind of struck up this friendship and professional relationship that has just been so incredible. Yeah, It's yeah. been so influential and amazing yeah um, definitely you two have had a lot of influence on it on one another totally and i didn't realize and i'm jumping ahead here but we'll go back again that you know the decision to go to the bar was a decision you made together it is yeah and you went to went for it together we i mean did. that's pretty incredible yeah did the exams together moved, moved, both moved back to sydney together and we'd been living together in dubbo mm. in steven's house and then we Moved back to Sydney together and lived together at my place. It's quite, quite a close relationship. Very close. Stephen can yeah. just pop over and just knows he's got a, a bed at your Absolutely. place. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Anytime. Yeah. 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 And, he, well, he, and, he, and he makes use of that. And he, certainly, he certainly did. Oh, pr- totally. Prior to the expansion of your family. Yeah, yeah that's true. When, when, when um, Robbie came along, I did sort of have to have a chat with him and say, it's not, I'm, it might still Things work, but we'll see. <laughs> No, he had to get rid so of his good. bed to make room for the playroom. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, so you guys start off. Can I ask a bit of a tangent question? Um, where does uh, my cousin Paul Cranny fit into this uh, time period? Where yeah, you okay. At Dubbo so, so I was at Dubbo for a year. Uh-huh. And the trial advocate position was based in Dubbo, but we yeah. had this kind of joke that TA actually meant travelling advocate because uh-huh. Stephen spent a lot of time travelling, as his role required, sure. but spent a lot of time travelling to the other offices in the western region, so Burke, Broken Hill, Wagga, Bathurst, yep. Griffith, what yep. else do we have? Um, Walgett, Paul Cranny. And just for the record, Paul Cranny was this rebel wild child of my family who was, yeah, who was a DJ at night and, you know. Yeah, and then had I think this, he still DJs. I think he does because, yeah. you know, you can't, why give up what you love? But he had this one aid and he's like, I'm going to serve everyone. I'm going to be a man of service and yeah. now is a admitted barrister himself he is, and yeah. one of the most upstanding gentlemen on the planet. Yeah. Tell us about this. Yeah, so he, I, after a year in Dubbo, I, there was a job that came up in the Broken Hill office, which mm. is a much smaller office, just two lawyers, sometimes three. Mm. And uh, Nadine Miles, who was the, the boss of the West, said, you know, do you want to go and run the broken hill office and i like really wanted the opportunity yeah. i'd never been to broken hill mm. but i'd heard of this place that was interesting place interesting i'd heard about it from people like angus webb i'd heard about it from graham Barr, yeah. who'd done circuit work out there yeah. when he was a judge and i knew about lawyers that had been there manny had been a lawyer at the broken right. hill als of office course. which and i'd met manny when i was a student at the, we were both on the Young Lawyers Criminal Law Committee okay. of the Law Society, mm-hmm. which students could be on as well, even if you weren't a lawyer yet. Mm. And he'd been at the Broken Hill ALS, then he'd been at the Criminal Law Review Division, and he seemed kind of just like a really interesting guy. You sort of learn about these people. You're hungry for other people's career stories as Absolutely. a young well, I suppose you student would be. and lawyer to learn what's possible, what's out there. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew about this this land out there yeah. in the far west yeah. and this lawyering that was going on out there. Mm. So I took up that job. Cranny became a lawyer at the ALS in Dubbo first and then in Walgett, I think. Mm-hmm. Just can't quite remember the timing of it, whether I was back in Dubbo because I moved back in 2012 to to be the managing lawyer of the Dubbo office and then I became the trial advocate and then I became the principal legal officer yeah so i can't remember whether cranny was there during that time i think maybe he was yeah so around sometime between sort of 2011 and 2014 or so i think he was did you see at Dubbo Walgett? he he struck me as someone that really fell in love with the work 
and I think it really changed him as a person because he was hungry for it. And I think he still, I mean, obviously, he's still got that hunger. Did you witness any of that? I mean, you've said that you had that as well, and you were experiencing mm. that. Did you witness that in others, like Paul or in other people, where they'd come and they'd experience it, and it would be either be a baptism of fire, they'd be like, yes, yes, more of this, or no, this isn't for me. Yeah, I mean, people stay for varying amounts of time, and because it's, I can imagine it's tough work. Yeah, it's tough work. Psychologically. Yeah, it is. And, you know, people are usually, not always, but usually leaving their ordinary social networks of family and friends, you know, many hundreds of kilometres away. I mean, for me, I found that that time was really formative in terms of making some of the dearest friends that I have who I consider basically as family. Yep. So... That was really a wonderful time for me that that happened. Mm. You know, people like Christian Hearn, Lucinda yeah. Hopper, mm. Stephen, obviously. Yep. People who, yeah, continue to be really influential on me. And so I think, and I think that's quite a common experience that people make really tight friendships mm. and friendships that persist through people's different career choices of, you know, becoming prosecutors or leaving the law or doing different things, moving out of criminal law. Yeah. Or, you know, going to the bar. You know, I have friends from that time that briefed me. So, yeah, I think it's it's hard for me to speak about what, other people's experiences are all I can say is that for me it was a really formative time and I learned a lot about lawyering and I think also from lots of different sources like obviously at that time you're hungry you know Mm -hmm. you're you're wanting to read the cases memorize the legislation be just a sponge for all of this information about how to advocate for your client's interests in court. Mm -hmm. But I think also just reflecting on it more, a real source of knowledge and kind of uh, something that really contributed to working my work as a lawyer is what I learned from my clients. Okay, what do you mean by that? I think there are a few things. I think especially in, out in the far west, but also in Dubbo and the, the, all of the towns around that the ALS worked at, you know, Ningen and Warren and Gilgandra and Coonabarabran and so on, Narromine, all, all these different places, and I used to go up to the other offices as well. But out in places like Ulcanya, Wentworth, Derton, Balranald, people, Aboriginal people have through generation upon generation experienced really serious disadvantage, really serious social disadvantage, real unfairness, discrimination, treatment by the state in all its different forms, especially the police, that's been really harsh and unjust. And I think there are some things that come from that that my clients really imparted upon me. One is like resilience and fighting really hard. So, you know, if you, your client says they want to plead not guilty or, you know, they, they want to plead guilty and get the best sentencing outcome, you know, just fighting really hard for them and being really resilient in the face of the challenging environment, whether it's from the bench or from the police or, you know, your police prosecutor opponent's attitude or... I can imagine that like would that. be... I could, yeah, I mean, I can imagine that can be quite stressful because... Uh, going into a courtroom, you, as an advocate, when you're not, when you're on, when you're opposition, when you're opposing, and you're trying to sort of defend someone, it must be intimidating because you want to meet the expectations of the client, and you feel like you maybe want to meet the expectations of the court, and maybe feel like you're liked mm. by the judge mm. and respected, mm. despite the fact that you're going against probably what the better interest of... I mean, you know, I'm just... This is my theory going in. I find court really intimidating Mm. and advocating, which I haven't really done much of, 
really intimidating. Yeah, and I think one of the key values of lawyering that places like the ALS really instill is fearlessness. Wow, okay. Like being a fearless advocate and... Yeah, trying to suspend your sense of fear. Yeah, yeah, and and and, I mean, I kind of the the, the word escapes me, but just sort of like your sort of self esteem and mm. how you're perceived. Because I, you know, I, I I can imagine like walking into a courtroom for the first time and just wanting to be just not wanting to cause a fuss. Sure, I mean, I think partly that was. The I mean, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have for me. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know you wouldn't experience that now, and but do you remember that? feeling in the courtroom for the first time or I've never really had the sense of not wanting to cause a fuss cool yeah or or, or the fear of embarrassment by the judge or the magistrate Mm. getting a talking down to I mean I know you guys laugh about it now Mm. but I I think that sounds like my worst nightmare (laughs) yeah I don't know I just think there was something that was in me and I think it does come from the clients as well yeah okay like the other thing that I think I really learnt from them or really they really helped me to do was to hone my instinct for injustice Mm -hmm. so I think a lot of my clients just really had a sense of when they had been treated unfairly Mm -hmm. they had a really keen instinct for that Mm -hmm. and they helped me I think to really hone my instinct for when something was unfair and when you needed to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And I think I just... I think I find court fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quite electric. And so if I'm standing up and, you know, I'm really advocating for someone and I'm doing something that's... I don't know, like, I don't know, I remember this day back in, I don't know, it might have been, might have been in my first year in 2009, and the magistrate started cross-examining my client. Oh, wow. In a defended hearing. Okay. And I objected. Yeah. To the magistrate's question. Yeah. And, you know, told them that that was an improper kind of... Yep. That made submissions about how they were improperly inserting themselves as an advocate mm-hmm. in the proceedings. Yeah, I just remember this. The, the court officer came, sort of came down and said to me, like, that was really brave. Oh, wow. Objecting to mm-hmm. the magistrate. Mm-hmm. But, but you didn't see it that way. I guess I just was in the moment mm-hmm. of acting for my client yep. and what was required by that. Yeah. In my interview with Stephen, he said, and obviously you're a solicitor in the, in the circumstance that you're talking about, mm-hmm. he said, yeah, you know, like we made the decision to go to the bar together, you and him. Mm. Um, do you remember that conversation? I mean, the bar, and I didn't, you know, Stephen, the way Stephen put it, it's a completely different beast to being a solicitor. Mm. It's less, I mean, I know you said you love the collaborative nature of, of, of legal work. Mm. Steve said... Uh, for his experience at least that it's it's less it's less about the campaigning of change and for more sure. and more just client based for sure you take each case as it comes right right did you need much convincing i think i had always seen it as something that might be on my career pathway because i do love that courtroom advocacy and that's such a major part of being at the bar mm-hmm. It's really cool to be able to practice as a solicitor advocate. Criminal law definitely provides many opportunities for that, including at high levels, including at appellate level and so on. But there's much more scope, I think, for doing the more tricky cases if you're at the bar. Mm. And you're you're happy to go down that road? Yeah, I was up for the challenge. Yep. Yeah. You'd done enough at the ALS. Were you ready to leave? I 
I often have this sense of wanting to be able to split myself into at least three different people. Okay. And having these kind of different modes of being. Mm. So I think there's always so many more things that would be interesting to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. uh, But it seems right. But he brought it to you. You were like, yeah, okay, yep. I think we were both probably just... I don't... Or was it even him? Maybe you guys were just no, having a chat. Yeah, I, I don't remember it being him suggesting it necessarily or... Yeah, okay. I think it was I don't know just where I something that, from. that we <laughs> both... He'd been the principal legal officer for a time, so had I. We'd both been trial advocate. We... I was sort of thinking about maybe moving back to Sydney at some point. The bar seemed like a good place to do that. Mm. And kind of just seemed... I think it just emerged for both of us as this next step that would be interesting and fun and challenging and cool to do together as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's not... you don't hear many stories of people doing it together. Mm. Yeah. Like you play off each other a little bit more. And... Was there wasn't a third person that you... It was just the two of you? Yeah, just the two of us. Mm. I mean, there were lots of other people that obviously went yeah, through yeah, yeah. that cohort at that time. And But I feel but... like it was like a sort of sibling-ish type thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you guys are kind of like... <laughs> it's a good you know, way of yeah, putting yeah. it. Yeah, that's what I feel. When I first met you guys and I heard this story, it's like that's the sort of... Perception I got of it, it painted in my head. Yeah, it's funny you say siblings because our dads actually have a a, a past that goes back well before Stephen and I met each other. Really, they knew each other. Yeah. Really, yes. wow. it's quite a funny story actually because I didn't really know the connection, but I remember going home one day and um, after I'd realised the connection. So Steve's dad, Bill, was an administrator in the health yeah. space. Yeah. And my dad was a doctor at Sydney Hospital. Yeah. And he was big on campaigning to maintain Sydney Hospital as a full, um, you know, trauma hospital and everything. Mm. And the administrators were trying to shut it down. Mm. And limit its scope for what it did now. It's so now they were mainly this and the butting heads these two. Absolutely butting heads, wow. right. And I went I realised oh this connection God. that they knew each other and I go home one day yeah. and say to my dad, Oh dad, you know my friend Stephen Lawrence, you know, that just worked out the connection. His dad's <laughs> Bill Lawrence, you know him and he said, Oh, what's Bill done now? <laughs> <laughs> that is the best story. And it perfect. was so funny because it was like, well, this sort of, I don't know, we, we have become such tight friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. And our fathers and have been like these rivals. <laughs> that is awesome. That's just like, that's so poetic, it's that whole relationship. Totally, seriously. totally. That is so funny. Um, so, you know, that kind of brings us to, I mean, I, I'm not going to skirt over your entire career um, as a barrister because it's been, uh, it's, it's, it's been meteoric and momentous and you've had some huge cases mm-hmm. and... I don't know about that. I feel like you have, you know, like you certainly, you've, you've definitely got a reputation for yourself. I mean, like, I, I mean, you know, that's my perspective. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we should ask around. But, but um, uh, you strike me as someone who you're not going to rest on your laurels. Do you... This is hypothetical. You Will you be a barrister forever? Mm. I mean, it's a calling, right? Sure. But so is the ALS. Mm. I think... That's really hard to answer. I, I really love it. I'm really challenged by it. You're really good at it. So, you know, I work really hard at it. Right. I think working really hard is kind of really the key to it. Yeah, okay. Do you know? Like, yeah. Well, what do you mean by, can you, can you, what do you mean? Working really hard is the key to it. You can't, you can't be a half-measured barrister. No. You have to give yourself. Yeah. I remember and you, I think particularly in criminal law... You've got this client 
you know, in defence, I, I pros- do some prosecution as well. But when you've got a client, their liberty's in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. You know, they have very a very kind of particular relationship to the state. There's this imbalance of power. Mm-hmm. You're entrusted with this really heavy responsibility of trying to make sure that that imbalance in power doesn't result in actual unfairness and... Gosh. You... And there's just kind of so many different ways of approaching a case and in terms of, like, you could just do endless preparation, I Mm. think. And... Yeah, I... But I just do... I do know from my own experience that I've had really good outcomes in cases through just doing a lot of work on a case. Okay. Yeah, okay. And kind of not giving up. That sort of resilience, that sort of fighting hard mentality that I really think a lot of my clients, particularly from out west, kind of really showed how important that was. The, the, the institution of the bar, what's it like... Uh, being a woman in the bar. Mm. I mean, I don't think about it that much. It definitely kind of comes up when the fact that I'm a woman, I guess, intersects with doing the work that I do. I guess for me, it's kind of hard because there's so many things about who I am and where I've come from that just mean that I'm in a really privileged position. And so I, and I've had a lot of people in my career who've really pushed me forward and like held me up and Mm. given me opportunities. And I've never really felt like I've been held back or kind of disadvantaged because I'm a woman. Mm. Um, but, you know, occasionally judges will call me Mr. Graham. Uh-huh. And there's this kind of, I don't know, maybe lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is there. Yeah. This unconscious lens. Yeah. I always think of it um, as a male. I always used to think of it as a male. Mm. Not because I... I mean, it I is. Just the the, the a, statistics show that it is. Is it? Which, yeah. What are I mean, the, women are maybe... 30% of the New South Wales bar. Is that right? Something like that. Oh my gosh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And when I did the course there were with Stephen, there were 45 of us in the course, 15 were women. So again, but women only are more... around that sort of 30% range. Mm. So you kind of... So low. Isn't there more uh, female solicitors in New South Wales? Yeah, that, that clicked over a couple of years ago, I think. Funny that the, the, the... And the law schools have been... Full of women, yeah. Yeah. And no one's making the jump. Yeah, there are lots of barriers to it, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that we've really tried to achieve through our model at Black Chambers is to think about ways that you can make being a barrister more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've been on parental leave for the last six months. Mm-hmm. And our policies at Chambers have facilitated me being able to do that. Yep. And, and also kind of staying connected but not having the financial burden of having to maintain... Because you're a small business owner time. as well. Yeah, mm. that's right. Uh, but it hasn't been like that for women and it still isn't like that for some women yeah. at the bar yeah. in terms of how flexible... Chambers arrangements are, and then I guess there's also just the reality of the type of work. Mm-hmm. And it's takes it takes a toll, takes yeah, time. It's really demanding of it, time. Right, right, right. It's, um, and, and it you, can be flexible, but it can be really inflexible. Yep, 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 yep. And 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 yourself, Emmanuel and Stephen, all have you know functioning relationships that. You know, it, it, I can only imagine. Mm. You know, the, the support that you get from that is huge. Must be and really important. Mm. Yeah, mm. for sure. And yeah, because Ed's a professional as well. Yeah. So you know, it's um, yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah. Just want to bring something up, um, and it doesn't relate to um your situation, but 
in the time between my interview with Stephen and my interview with you, there's a situation that happened in the county court in Victoria where someone was breastfeeding in the back of the courtroom and was expelled from the room Mm. by the judge who Mm. thought it would be a distraction for the jury. Mm. And I think there was a situation where it happened again in the Mm. same courtroom. Not sure if it was the same judge. It was a protest. Oh, oh, okay. Second event. Oh, was it? Um, uh, Or some form of protest, yeah. Stop me and we'll cut it out if, I'm, if you don't want me to ask this question. But wouldn't, would you see a scenario... Do you, first of all, do you think that's ridiculous? And secondly, wouldn't you, shouldn't you be allowed to like feed your own child if you were advocating for someone? And it's a separate situation, but I mean, like, practicalities need call for practical solutions, don't they? Mm. I mean, I think it's really important for us to do things in society that normalise breastfeeding, normalise that act of feeding a baby because we just don't want at all to deter women from doing that or yeah. feeling comfortable in doing that. Yeah, because it's a necessity. necessity of yeah. life to their yeah. baby. The child has to eat. They need to eat. Absolutely. Ridiculous. And women should be able to do that in public places. Because women need to do things as well. Yeah, they need to be able to participate and be in public places and that's really important. Mm-hmm. I think... It would be really interesting to do an episode where we discuss this case because Mm. teasing out the different issues, I think there's kind of quite a lot to unpack and discuss. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ultimately, I land on if the baby's not being sort of disruptive some other way, like crying, which I think happened on the second incident, they should be able to remain in the courtroom, in the gallery, with their parent feeding them. Yeah. But I do see... I have some level of sympathy for the judge because, you know, you're presiding over this criminal trial that's a really fragile being. You're trying to do everything to make sure that it stays on the rails and doesn't get aborted for some reason that results in the trial having to run again, you know, a complainant having to come back, Mm. the accused having to face the proceedings again, yeah, the resources of the court and the parties and so on. Yeah. So you're sort of really anxious to make sure that nothing happens to to derail that process. But I just think that the judge saying that breastfeeding in and of itself is distracting to the jury or could be so distracting to the jury as to require that person to leave, I just think that that doesn't wash because, you know, courts... Courts are active places, they're busy places, parties come in and out of the courtroom, you know, lawyers talk to their clients, documents are moved around, different things happen and it's a public place for a reason unless there are certain kind of constraints on that that are are recognised in terms of limitations on the access to justice and principles. And, yeah, I just think that the idea that that, Warrants that 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 you know apparent level of distraction that the that the judge was worried about warrants excluding that person from the court. I just don't think that. Yeah. That was the right. Yeah. Way to approach it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that leads me to the next question. Um, you know, um, COVID. You've got so much courtroom experience. You know, like thousands. You know, it's right thousands mm. of experiences. There was a situation recently where, uh, I mean, obviously COVID, you had to do everything online. Mm. You guys had your famous Black Lives Matter march, yeah. which was an online... It uh, was. We uh, were in Dubbo. In Dubbo. And you, 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 were, you were board shorts on beneath and robes above, you know. Like. I didn't even have my robes. So <laughs> Stephen was wearing his gown and jabot. I was wearing his bar jacket and a spare jabot <laughs> so that we vaguely both looked like we were wearing the right kind of really? garb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, like you wouldn't get like a, like a, like a bath towel onto the head. Just like, <laughs> like, make it like something of a, And I think of maybe Court of Appeal just, they didn't wear wigs, so that was fine for us not to be wearing wigs. Yeah. yeah anyway. Well, the reason I asked is apparently there was, there was a poll taken by the Law Society, I think, mm. where... 
there's a recommendation. Oh, not to wear robes. Well, no, just to have courts online. Oh, and and okay. uh, functioning moving forward. Mm. And there was like an overwhelming majority to have it. Solicitors. Yeah, I guess so. Mm. They were the ones polled. I heard it on ABC Sydney Radio okay. a week ago. I think what it depends think? what it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think there were a lot of processes that had been operating, for example, in the civil law context for years yeah. where you could do a lot of more straightforward procedural appearances mm-hmm. through an online system administered by a registrar that were then somewhat through the use of email adopted into criminal proceedings during pandemic times. Yep. But a lot of that has been wound back and Mm -hmm. there's definitely, I think, a movement or view that some of those processes that happened as a result of the pandemic were actually quite good just for ordinary yeah. circumstances yeah. and that maybe that kind of thing should be as you're happy again, with that, that administrative again. level yeah so I think there's that kind of stuff can you can organise the system in a way that parties aren't going to be disadvantaged when there are these kind of straightforward consent procedural type orders being made yeah but when it gets outside of that category, and particularly in criminal law, I'm just quite troubled by moving more and more to remote forms of justice. Okay. And even, I remember, it's around the time that I was starting out as a lawyer, there was more of a shift towards persons in custody appearing by video link rather mm-hmm. than yeah, yeah. in person. They're, you know, ordinarily if someone's in custody and they have court, they get brought physically to the court yeah. to appear. They can physically speak with their lawyer. Yes. And that obviously also involves a lot of movement of prisoners around the state from different places of detention, different jails to various different courthouses all Mm. over the state. A lot of trucks driving, a lot of people, um, you know, getting on trucks early in the morning with all that that involves. So there are definitely pros and cons. You know, a a lot of people who are in prison would say... You know, I want to appear on AVL because I can do that and then I can go back to something else in the jail. I don't want to be on a truck from 4am in the morning and miss breakfast and then end up having to wait for everyone to finish their court and missing dinner at the other end of the day as well and and all of that. But I just have some hesitation about it all. I remember sitting in Broken Hill Court one day and there was a child on the video screen and the magistrate was sentencing the child and then and kind of delivering all the reasons and your sentence to this that and the other and then kind of part way through or at the end of the judgment got revealed actually it's the wrong child on the screen Mm. and and just a little bit hesitant to say oh yeah let's just off we go into sort of online court and that that world of remote mm. justice in this sort of wholesale way. I think there are definitely areas where it can be used effectively and uh, efficiently, but I don't like the efficiency value being kind of put ahead of what else is going on, like yeah. the meaningful... The human element. The human element and the meaningful participation Mm. of particularly accused persons in court proceedings, which often requires them to be, you know, physically present and be able to relate to their lawyers physically and hear the judge and Mm. be in the same room. I think that's a good summary of your career so far, the human element. 
Mm. I think I would use that to sum you up. In the in the, I don't, I don't mean to scratch the surface of mm. your entire career, but that's what I take away from it mm. so far in my interactions with you over the last couple of years and our conversation today. Mm. We've only scratched the surface, but we've got to go out to lunch. <laughs> so um, thank you so much. What a what an exciting, excellent uh, dedication career to service you've provided. Thank you for your service. Good to be with you, Jim. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.